the podcast that challenges popular opinions about movies. I'm Brandon, but you shouldn't use my name. Brandon, Brandon, we got Brandon here. See, no one cares. I do. I'm Zach Smith Michaels, and I'm a clever girl. And I'm Mitch, and after careful consideration, I'm a do you thinkysaurus. And tonight we're flinging wide the gates of Isla Nublar to ask, how did Jurassic Park bring movie monsters to life? Zach? What? Why don't you give us the synopsis for Jurassic Park? Hold on to your butts. God creates dinosaur. God destroys dinosaurs. God creates man. Man destroys God. Man creates dinosaurs. Dinosaurs eat man. Woman inherits the earth. Well, to get things started, the music in Jurassic Park is iconic. It is one of the best parts of the movie. What do you think John Williams' best film score is? I remember talking to Brandon about this one time, and just out of nowhere, Brandon said, Jurassic Park has got to be the most iconic score of all time. To which I said, of all time? Mm, I'm sorry, that goes to Star Wars. And I, I feel like I want... I don't like to be quoted. Unless it was like the last month that I said These that. These are I don't not like peer-reviewed. Be <laughs> <laughs> Let's be clear. So we actually have a, we have a little feedback from some of our listeners that we'd like to go to here that we pulled from our Facebook page. Emily Manrique says... I love so many. My favorite fun one is probably Jurassic Park or Jaws, and my favorite serious one is Schindler's List. How do you guys feel about those choices? Jaws, I mean, yes, iconic. I think there's people who aren't familiar with Jaws as a movie or haven't seen the movie, but everyone knows the two nuts. And as far as Schindler's yeah. List goes, it's a very beautiful score. And I don't want to say what makes music good is based on how memorable it is, but it's not, you know, one that has those big orchestral swells. It's a more like quiet one, which is a nice side from John Williams, too. So I think it kind of shows his versatility as an artist. Mm. Brian Richard Smith says favorite Jurassic Park and most underrated is Home Alone. That's a good selection there. A lot of people don't know about Home Alone. It's Mm -hmm. it's catchy. I think the score for Home Alone, it adds like a layer of grandiose to that film because I think, you know, typically it would be like a very like bomb, bomb, dun, 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 dun type score, but this has the big dun, 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 dun. Like it's so yeah. big yeah. and over the top, but it works. I love it. Yeah. Oh yeah, it works. Yeah, it I works think for there's sure. There's some dynamics in there too. Like it's mischievous and you know right. tinkery in parts too. Yeah. But we've heard like the typical Christmas score for like a family film about a kid staying home. You, I don't think you would think. Let's get the guy who wrote Star Wars to come in and do this, which you know probably shows how much stock <laughs> they are putting into the project. 
Zach, I see you commented here on Facebook. It says the snobby answer is ET. I'm going to push back on that. The right snobby. This let, me, let me explain. Let me explain for a minute. Let me first say okay. that ET is easily my favorite. Yeah, it is yeah. my favorite. So for me, it's I, I want to say E.T., but in my heart of hearts, it's I mean, it's it's Star Wars. Like for me, it, it just is. When you say movie score, I think of the Star Wars themes first and foremost. <laughs> and, you know, for me, it's every time I say something else, it feels like I'm trying to sound smart or clever or not pedestrian. Yeah, I mean. I got but, that. And I'm not saying the E.T. score is bad. It's definitely one of my all time favorite film scores. But I mean, to me, I think Star Wars is the definitive John Williams score. I would edge out E.T. though, because it's got like it makes me cry. Or yeah. like Star mm. Wars is very memorable and it's very bombastic. But I don't know. There's just like a child centric kind of point of view going on in E.T. and the music. I feel like I single out individual themes when I think of John Williams. I don't think of the whole score as much. I think you're right, Mitch. Overall, Star Wars is very big and boomy. But I think about the tune when Luke is walking up on the sand dune and he's looking at the sunset. Yeah. That makes me cry. Yeah, that makes me cry the sure. same way the main theme for me T is also very emotional. But I feel that I feel the same way about both of those. Yeah, when yeah. when Elliot flies over the moon in ET, that's just as mm-hmm. powerful for me in a lot of ways. Yes, and absolutely. it's the score that that brings it there. So again, like maybe snobby isn't the right word, but it's definitely the answer that I want to get when I want people to re- respect my opinion. That's <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. gracious. <laughs> I wanted to read a quote from Spielberg on this because he had something really beautiful to say. He said, without John Williams, bikes don't really fly, nor do brooms and Quidditch matches, nor do men in red capes. There is no force. Dinosaurs do not walk the earth. We do not wonder. We do not weep. We do not believe. I think that's like really telling about like the career he's had. Like you think the best movies, right? The best movies and the most iconic movies. They're all John Williams. Like we're not even like touching on like, Friggin' Harry Potter. You know what I mean? Like, just music that defines... Yeah, Superman. Music that defines generations. That's what he turns out. That's... A great point. Movies are nothing without the music that accompanies them. Mm-hmm. And and you're and you're right. We haven't even touched on Harry Potter. We haven't mentioned Indiana Jones. These are terribly famous. If you whistle any of these tunes to a group of people, you know, 90% of the people are going to know what movie that's from. Yeah. And Zach, you, you slid in Superman. That's that's in a very iconic theme song. It's probably much more famous than that movie. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've often thought about some of these directors and they're like first time working with John Williams, like Spielberg with Jaws or George Lucas with Star Wars. Sometimes I just like to think about the first time that they sat down and watched the movie with his score. Yeah. Mm. Emotional. Yeah. I'm sure. 
Because it, it is a lot of it is essentially you took my movie and like I'm not trying to knock these movies at all. Like a lot of these movies also are some of the greatest movies of all time, but they take them into that like next level of just like all time classic. Yeah. Goodness. Even when I was watching Jurassic Park, like I was gripped the, before we even saw anything like it's like, boom, yeah. <laughs> right. It just like draws you into the world. I wrote that in my notes. Yeah. I was like, oh, this this title screen. Yeah. And he plays like everything. I feel like majestic until it isn't. And everything becomes like very, very hairy. And I feel like in Jurassic Park, it doesn't get enough credit like a Star Wars does because it's, right, I think, sure. accomplishing like this almost religious awe and wonder at the same time as like giving a lot of scenes an incredible amount of tension. I think there is something to be said for what each theme is trying to accomplish. Yeah. And where like, you know, an ET theme is very tender. Right. You know, and then you've got a, a Raiders of the Lost Ark theme, very epic and, and similar, yeah. similar yeah. with Dra- Jurassic Park of adventurous, fun, exciting. But a couple of the ones I mentioned about, you know, E.T. and the one theme from Star Wars, just more emotional and just really makes me want to melt. Yeah. Well, there's mm-hmm. also that big sense of wonder in Jurassic yeah, Park. For sure. It also has to be played for horror in, in some scenes, too. Mm-hmm. And like watching the movie, I was like a lot of these scarier moments like Williams pulled back there isn't score which is i don't really know how scoring a movie works but it makes the quiet moments all the more scary and the moments with Mm -hmm. the score all the more powerful jurassic park is full of some great moments what is your guys favorite moments from this movie Really quick story. I didn't see these movies until Brandon lent them to me as an adult. So I went into these kind of ready to go. All right, let's see. Let's see what the deal with these Jurassic Park movies is. And I was just completely floored by the first one, like just knocked my socks off. And one of the things in the movie that I think is so genius and, you know, bear in mind, I haven't read the book and I don't really know how that plays out. But and particularly I was reminded on this rewatch of when they talk about Hammond before you meet him. Because it's not a lot of time that he's not in the movie, but they talk about Hammond. You see these people and he seems like he's going to be this kind of like suit wearing like businessman. But then when you meet him, he's Santa Claus and he seems kind of great and he seems really nice and sweet. And then the more that you get pulled in because we've seen movies and we know what to do, you're expecting Hammond to become the bad guy. You know, like when is Hammond going to become the villain? When is his master plan going to be revealed? And like just watching this, I'm reminded Hammond is not the bad guy in this movie. He is a sweet old man who wants to create this awesome park for families to come and enjoy. He's not the villain. He's just meddling with things he shouldn't be meddling with. And I think his characterization is definitely one of my favorite elements of this film. Yeah, I love his transformation. He goes from like a P.T. Barnum or like a Walt Disney. He's like a showman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, he's he's introducing everyone. And and honestly, one of my favorite moments has got to be kind of the big reveal. Welcome to Jurassic Park. Oh gosh, you know, yeah. it, it just it gives me chills when I watch it, even just thinking about it. But yeah. then... One thing I noticed this time, as soon as he gets into the control room with some of his longstanding employees and you kind of see behind the scenes a little bit, you really start to get a sense for like, this is the darker side, like maybe some of the not so great things we've heard about Walt Disney and some of the, you know, he becomes phobic. Let's talk about it, folks. Dennis, our lives are in your hands and you have butterfingers. And then later, where's Nedry? Check the vending machines. 
Like, what is your problem? <laughs> oh, you you just stomped have, on that one real I quick. I have that locked and loaded, ready to go. Sam <laughs> and the monster. I think just little things like, I really hate that man. And it's like, whoa, I knew you didn't, I knew you didn't like him. Yeah. I didn't like, this is just very, we're getting a very frank side of Hammond in the control room. I thought it was very interesting. Mish, favorite moments. Did anyone else pump their fists when Jeff Goldblum showed up? I love him. I didn't pump my fist. That's me. All right. I feel like he's like, if if you like put Carl Sagan and an electric guitar and a teleport machine and there was a problem and it like messed up, you get his character in this movie. Ian Malcolm is easily one of my favorite movie characters. The way he's able mm-hmm. to just like hit on Dr. Sadler right in front of Dr. Grant. Yeah, easily. Mr. Steal Your Girl. There are a few movie characters that make me as joyous uh, as Jeff Goldblum in this movie. Also, the Shuta scene right at the beginning of the freaking movie. What a way to start a film. Yeah, there's like 10 guys. That grabs you by the hair and just just forces you to pay attention. Just forces you. Yeah, they're all like using those electric guns trying to stop it and nothing is working. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is an unsafe stoppable monster right you know what's funny about this movie is it makes you forget about that opening scene yeah and i just and i'm just realizing that now yeah that happens before all of the great things that happen you know and you totally forget about that horror that happens in the very (laughs) the very first minutes of the movie right yeah um well speaking of horror and you see spielberg like classic spielberg all over this my favorite scene in the movie hands down is the raptors in the kitchen which is i mean it's a brilliant visual (laughs) raptors in a kitchen something you've never seen before and it (laughs) plays into kind of like primal fears in a way like when you think about jaws and you think about people didn't go into the ocean well jurassic park is interesting because now it makes it like no 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 now you can't even go in your kitchen because there might be raptors in there like it it takes fear and like puts it in your house. It's just such a a brilliant ten like tension filled scene, and it's absolute genius. Never have I been so afraid because someone bumped into a spatula than because yeah. of that scene, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm totally oh, yeah. with you. Just the fact that when they start opening doors, you're like, unless yeah. they can open doors, you're like what's going on now? They're opening doors. Like it's just a great <laughs> escalation. When we see the full might of the t-rex for the first time when he throws that big foot down on the pavement for the first time and i feel like like as a viewer of this movie the way grant feels when he spots the first dinosaur like the way you just see like the all pour over his over his face you know that when he sees his first dinosaur that's how i feel like that's how you you feel when you're watching this movie like oh my gosh that t-rex is huge and it rips off that big roar so great so great. Side note: Is there an underground network of tunnels with filled with goats? I'm watching that, and I'm like, how do they just lift the coat up? <laughs> when you've watched the movie enough times, these are the things you start to think about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, another one of the things I love in this movie is that, like, as the movie ramps up, every time you kind of get a chance to like exhale, some mm. like something else happens. Like I, I wrote down the line when uh when Ellie kind of looks into. Ellie Sattler kind of looks in the camera a little bit and she says, Mr. Hammond, 
I think we're back in business. And it's a line that you're kind of like, yes. okay. And then Raptor jumps out and you're like, ah, okay. Oh my God. It's genius. It's yeah. genius. And then the, the arm, I mean, yeah. come on. That scene is yeah. terrifying. Finally, Tim and Lex get to sit down and, and eat some, some candy and some cake. And here comes the Raptors. <laughs> Bet you'll never look at Jello the same way again. <laughs> but for real, my favorite scene in the movie that's not scary is probably the the lunch scene See the lack of humility before nature that's being displayed here um, staggers me well thank you dr malcolm but i think things are a little bit different than you and i had feared yeah i know they're a lot worse now wait a second now we haven't even seen the part where don't, 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 don't let him talk there's no reason no no i want to hear a review part i really do yeah don't you see the danger uh john inherent uh, in what you're doing here, genetic power is the most awesome force the planet's ever seen, but you wield it like a, a kid that's found his dad's gun. It's hardly appropriate to start hurling generalizations. If I may, um, I'll tell you the problem with the scientific power that you're, that you're using here. Uh, it didn't require any discipline to attain it. You know, you read what others had done, and you, and you took the next step. You didn't earn the knowledge for yourselves, so you don't take any responsibility for it. You stood on the shoulders of geniuses uh, to accomplish something as fast as you could, and before you even knew what you had, you, you patented it and packaged it and slapped it on a plastic lunchbox, and now you're selling it. You want to sell it. Well, I, I don't think you're giving us our due credit. Our scientists have done things which nobody's ever done before. Yeah, yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. There's a lot of really good things to say about this, but I want to point out why are they eating in such a dark room and why are there 50 projectors showing all over the place? This would not be an enjoyable lunch to have. Never have I been less interested in in like food on a table. Like it just, (laughs) the conversation taking place during, during this luncheon Mm -hmm. was, was riveting. I mean, Mm -hmm. and this is, this is truly when we see the genius of Jeff Goldblum Mm -hmm. and Ian Malcolm Mm -hmm. together. Like he seems slimy a few times to me. And I'm sure when I was younger, I thought this guy's a creep when he's doing the water drippy thing on Dr. Sattler's hand and, and whatnot. But like in this scene, his insight is unmatched by anyone else. Yeah. I mean, earlier, a smidge earlier, he says like the kind of control you're at something is impossible, right? Life can't be contained. It's going to find a way it's going to break barriers. And it feels like Hammond, uh, especially in this scene, just has blinders on, right? Like it's all of the scientists telling him your attempt to control nature is going to fail spectacularly. And he's too invested, I feel like, to to listen, oh, sure. right? Yeah. I mean, Jurassic Park is a movie that, you know, at its core is about overreach. Right. So what can movies about meddling with powers beyond our control teach us? Mm. Well, to me, it, this like kind of story reminds me, it's like a modern Frankenstein in some ways, right? Like it's, yeah. what's the distinction between like exploring and an obsession? Because I think one of the endearing things about Hammond's character is he could have easily been just like a profiteer, right? Like I'm trying right. to mm-hmm. make money, but they, they give him a really nuanced take. Like he just believes, I feel like in technology and progress, right? You know, that scene at the end where he's like, I wanted to make something real. He believes in what he's doing but again just those blinders that he has on you know he's having that conversation later about the flea circus when his grandchildren are going to be killed and it's sadler who has to be like 
our loved ones are out there right now. That's all that should matter to us at this right, point. Right. right? Yeah. yeah I, fe- I feel like he's just become obsessed with scientific discovery and exploration and pushing the boundaries. And then on the other side, a movie, a more recent movie that I think addresses similar issues is the movie Ex Machina, which kind of talks about in a certain ways, when have we arrived when it comes to technology? Mm. You know, like we keep pushing the envelope and pushing the envelope and pushing the envelope. And the big question is kind of when should we stop? What is the end goal with this? Is there an end goal? And if there isn't an end goal, what's going to end up happening if we keep going down this road? And I think with Jurassic Park, I think it's an idea that's explored in the sequels and maybe it's not executed on super well, but of just like, well, we can, you know, he even says like, you knew that you could, you didn't stop to think if you should. And I think that that's just a really interesting thing to look into. And, you know, a movie like Ex Machina, they're creating, you know, artificial intelligent robot human thingy mabobs. But there is the question of like, just because we can be doing stuff like this, should we do it? Like, what is the the purpose? What is the point of doing something like this? Mm. Yeah, I think it's telling that all of the right questions start being asked after the great discoveries have been made and after the the overreaching has been done. That's when the questions start being asked. Well, we've already got the dinosaurs. I, I also think of <laughs> yeah, like... Yeah, the genie's um, out of the bottle at this point, right? Exa- yes. Exactly. Right. Like you, you went and did it. Right. So like a- asking these questions at this point is irrelevant. You know, they're already here. And it kind of, if you follow Jurassic Park through, you know, the sequels, it's always like, well, this time we're going to do it right. This time's yeah. different. Right. This time control. is. Yeah, we have control. And it's always the perception that th- this time we have control. And someone points out in this in this conversation, in this scene, you know, that that, that is the lie that the, that um, having the control. Yes. Right. That is the illu- mm-hmm. that is the illusion. Life that, finds that, a way. Yeah. That control was possible. Yeah. Well, I also love Hammond's line of, I can't believe this. The only person on my side is the blood sucking lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, I think it's telling that the second the lawyer sees, you know, the magnificence of the place, he's like, we're going to make a fortune. Right. Because that greed is rubbing off on him immediately. He sees the dollar signs the same way. And I don't think Hammond, he's not about the money. Well, he even says, I don't, I want everyone to be able to come to this park like you know he's saying it's not about the money i think the the flip side of greed though is just ambition and hammond has ambition mm. right he is seeking to do something maybe that shouldn't be done he's ambitious yeah right and i mean talking about going back to the the flea circus he's a showman he's in some ways a charlatan he is all about that wow factor he wants to impress he wants to instill this sense of wonder in in people and I think if we just for a second <laughs> talk about the lost the lost world, you went from capitalist to naturalist in four years or however yeah. long it was. Yeah. And I think that's that's very telling. That's very telling of, of John Hammond's arc in in this franchise. Yeah. Or even in Jurassic World, when they say John Hammond's dying wish, it's like, hold on. There's no way that was his dying wish to open the park. Uh, yeah. It just, yeah. It, that bothers me because it like 
abandons his arc in the first one. Like, right. You yeah. know, you, you said ex machina as a movie. I'm thinking, you know, the the Jurassic park ends kind of with a deus ex machina, right? It ends with yeah. this dinosaur coming in and any other movie, like last week we talked about back to the future, like breaking the rules of writing, right? That would be a problem. But in this movie, it's demonstrating the core theme of the movie, which is uh, the humans don't have control, right? right. It's nature right. in charge of the whole show. And the reason I bring that up with the Hammond arc is because he ends the movie able to say, finally, I don't endorse the park. And right, literally yeah. 20 minutes before, he's having the conversation with Sadler where he's still convinced I can get control even 10 minutes prior with the Raptors. He's like, don't kill the Raptors. He's still, you know, grappling and grappling. And I feel like it's that final push with the T-Rex, right? Where he's able to, to see there is no control, right? Nature yeah. is going to do what it wants to do. And we're just along for the ride. Jurassic Park set a new standard for visual effects in film and fundamentally changed the DNA of the modern blockbuster. We've come a long way since the early days of CGI, but somehow Spielberg did it bigger and better in 1993. How did he do that? Mm. I think if we can just take a little bit from, from Jurassic Park itself about overreach, I think, I think what Spielberg did not, uh, he did not overreach. Mm -hmm. He, pushed the technology of his day to the very limits. But I think when a movie struggles is when it tries to do more than it's really capable of doing visually. Like if we're just talking like with the, the effects mm -hmm. trying to do maybe something that would be cutting edge and people wouldn't be quite ready for. I think Spielberg takes something that he's familiar with something that he knows he can make look good and, and maybe something that would like be the best option for uh, like a realism in that day. And he just, he, he puts the pedal down. Yeah. Well, I mean, just talking about like the blending of the practical and the, the cutting edge, right? Like he's painting with, with all the brushes in the box, right? He's using all his tools. I actually really get frustrated. I feel like there's a modern criticism that's a little bit uninformed. People say something like, CG is bad or it's worse than it's ever been, which is mm. like simply just isn't true. Like CG right. is as an art form better than it's ever been. Like some of the best right. designers and artists in the world right now are using CG. I think the problem right. we're really trying to express is like an over-reliance on it, right? Like right. there are mm -hmm. 63 visual effects in the first Jurassic Park movie where Jurassic World has over 2000, which again, right. I'm not sure. saying like that's, inherently bad but it's using one tool over and over again like if i were trying to paint a masterpiece but only used one kind of brush it's right. going to be more challenging right so i think spielberg just blends you know lots of different methods you know like you said anything he could get his hands on to tell right. the story better right and and you know mitch you actually brought up something that i was thinking about because i you know initially when we were getting ready to do this question i was ready to kind of come in and and dunk on modern day cgi and some of that was fueled by mitch and i uh, just finished watching the dark crystal on netflix and mm. that is a show that if you look at it the puppet work in that is incredible and you know i read somewhere that it's 98 percent real and like that there's very little actual cgi and i was like yeah that's how you do it like yeah these cg movies don't know what they're doing they're not as good but then I thought about 
you know, a movie that I really, really love is War for the Planet of the Apes. And that is a movie that is, you know, mostly CGI. And what it what it all boiled down to for me is a, a movie monster or a movie creature is only as good as the characters that it's chasing a lot of the times. Like the hmm. thing about Jurassic Park is that you have the movie monster, but you care about the characters that it's chasing. Like you're yeah. afraid for those characters. You're scared that they're going to get eaten. And, you know, same thing. War for the Planet of the Apes. You know, you care about Caesar, Rocket, Maurice, all these, you know, apes who are in the movie. You care about them. And by the way, they also look great. But, you know, at the same time, I contrast that with um, a movie, a comedy. The, this is the end where there's horrible CGI in that movie. You know, the monsters in that movie look dreadful, but I like the characters in that movie. I think (laughs) I care about them. So when they're getting chased, it doesn't matter that the monsters look awful. I'm scared that, you know, one of my favorite characters might not be in the movie anymore. So yeah, the, the dinosaurs look fantastic in Jurassic Park, but you don't want your favorite character to go. Yeah, I mean, something that people bring up a lot about uh, Spielberg is he uses subjectivity a lot, right? Like, we see things from the perspective of his characters. So, like, when we're getting those shots of awe at the beginning of the movie, it's a lot of wide shots, there's a lot of distance. When it switches to horror, it's much more reliant on the subjective shots. It's all from the character's perspective. He's creating frames within frames. Like, we're getting, like, close-ups of dinos next to the geography. Like, we're seeing the T-Rex through the windshield, right? Stuff like that. We're seeing the face of the rapper like through the window of the kitchen. And that I think it's all about like how shots are framed within the geography of the world that makes it effective, right? We see those dinosaurs in Jurassic World, but often they're just not shot the same way. So we lose the effect. Right. And again, to to talk back to, you know, Mitch, like you were saying, the way that this movie's filmed, the scene we talked about earlier, just both of you imagine for a second that that you'd never seen Jurassic Park, that you'd never heard of Jurassic Park before. You know, now what if I told you there's a movie where there's two raptors in a kitchen chasing some kids? (laughs) Sounds terrifying. Yeah. (laughs) Terrifying. And you've never seen that before. I think if just to go on, just kind of the way the visuals of this movie a little more, I think if there's something that hasn't aged well, Mm. it's the CGI. Right. And I I looked at some of the the, some of the like early scenes and they're noticeable. I think if CGI is done right, you don't notice it. So, uh, you know, there were visuals in the in the early dinosaur scenes that I I was like, this is this is noticeable. I think what Spielberg did particularly well with Jurassic Park was the animatronics and specifically the Mm T-Rex. I think the sheer size and just like visual weight, the T-Rex encompasses on the screen it feels more real than any cgi i've i've ever seen and it is truly terrifying and and awe-inspiring and part of it too is just like the again it's painting with all the tools it's it's not just the visuals of the creature it's how the monster's been built up this is a movie like jaws or alien where it's that midway point before we even see the t-rex right we're afraid before we see it the water ripples in the cup. So we see that it's like a big, powerful thing. We watch mm-hmm. the T-Rex eat the goat. This thing is going to eat us, right? Like it's <laughs> those tension moments. Like Tim shutting the door is an incredibly tense 
moment, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just like, why did you do that? All of those things together make it a frightening monster, right? Uh, right. So it's it's the, the way it's shot it. as much. Yeah, the sound the sound design is incredible in this. You know, very few moments do we see a wide shot with the CG of the T-Rex, right? And those few moments are usually just to demonstrate how powerless they are. It's like him knocking the, the car, right? Like, otherwise, yeah. it's usually a subjective shot of something coming down to get him. So it's just, it's a really intelligently shot scene, that T-Rex. And I will say with the with the CGI, you know, I watched all the Jurassic Park movies this week. And, you know, in Jurassic World and Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, I'm just going to say, like, years out, it's not like the CGI looks that much more convincing in some places. Like, looking at yeah. some of those, I was like, I'm like, that's CGI. And that's just as much CGI as it was back then. But, you know, it it's not like it looks like the new movies look so much better by comparison. But mm. Jurassic Park is the first one is the movie that I want to watch. And it's not just because of the di- it's not just because it has those scary dinosaur moments. And it's not just because the movie looks incredible. It's because the screenplay is so good and it's directed well and everyone gives a great performance and the score is so good. It just it's the full package when it comes to movies. Well, maybe yeah. think too like. For writing, we often break it down in like, what are you saying and how are you saying it? Like cinematography, I'm like, all right, what does the shot say? How does it make me feel? Right? Like that might be how I would break it down. And I feel like the point of the Jurassic Park visuals, like it, it could just be spectacle. And I think that's what the Jurassic World and the sequels are doing a lot of the time. But in the first one, it's so much about recreating reality. Right. It's how the T-Rex tears the Jeep apart, right? Like it's it's interacting with a real physical world that and that's what makes the visuals feel seamless. And like yeah. I'm not noticing the tricks because it's. I'm seeing a real dinosaur in that moment. Yeah. And, and Zach, my Raptors in the kitchen scene is that T-Rex with the Jeep scene. Mm-hmm. And I, I love, I just love the, some of the choices that were made, like giving the roof of, I think it was a Ford Explorer, giving the roof of the Ford Explorer, like a com- making a complete sunroof. Yeah. So there's nowhere to hide, Yeah, you know, and, and the moment I just remember seeing this for the first time and like the moment he comes crashing down from above and they've only got that thin plexiglass in between themselves and T-Rex teeth. I also love that the first thing we see is just like his claw and you don't quite know what it is. You see his claw on the cable and then the full frontal. You get the full frontal at that point. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's that that scene is a perfect example of tension in a scene. Whereas, you know, you see the ripples in the water, you hear it coming and then it's established that, you know, T-Rex see things based on movement. Well, the, the guy can't get out of the car to tell the kids, hey, stop waving that light around or the yes. T-Rex is going to see him. So yes. then what's he going to do when it gets over there? Now I have to get out of the car. Now I know it's going to chase me. It's just there's always something that's tension filled happening in that scene, which makes the monster even more scary. Yeah, but Brandon, to your point, too, of like the close ups we get of like skin, yeah. eyes, teeth, eyes, yeah. right? Like they're couching the digital 
in the practical. So by the time I'm seeing the T-Rex in motion, the practical yeah. is in my mind, right? So I'm mm-hmm. not as focused on those. You know, even, you know, you mentioned the Brachiosaurus like earlier, like it's it's a little bit clear. It's an older movie. But just sure. because of the physical, again, like the trees I see uh, and how yes. like uh, the two characters are in bottom half of frame, it really makes it feel convincing because I feel like they pay attention yes. to weight, dimension, and a way that the, the other movies just don't. So yeah. that gives it the edge for me. I heard an interesting quote about Jurassic Park, and I'm, I'm going to put this out there. I don't know if I agree 100%, and I want to see what you guys think. Somebody was saying... The cool thing about Jurassic Park is that it's not an action movie. You know, it's a big, fun summer blockbuster, but it's not an action movie. What happens to the one character who has a gun in the movie? Yeah, Muldoon, Diet, Crocodile Dundee with his Spaz 12. Yeah. Clever girl. It's about, like, people using their brains to overcome. And it's, like, in the pitch, it it doesn't seem like that would work. Like, you know, instead of shooting the dinosaurs and having an all-out fight with them, a bunch of doctors use their brains to get out of these situations. Like, when you hear about it, it shouldn't work. But the movie does. Here's a quote from Ryan Coogler. The truth of the matter is that people want to see human stories. Humanity cuts through in most cases. And that's how Spielberg creates movie monsters. People want to see stories about relatable characters who are thrown into extraordinary situations. Even if your characters aren't human, we want to feel and connect. Look, Spielberg does a great job blending practical effects and CGI, but I want to talk to you about two scenes in two Jurassic movies. In Jurassic World, Claire has an assistant whose character is bland and forgettable. In fact, the only memorable thing about her is that when pterodactyls are mowing down innocent civilians, they lift her up in the air, fight over her, and eventually she's eaten by an aquatic dino. It feels like the filmmakers were trying to inspire awe, but it just comes across feeling mean. In Jurassic Park, There's a blood-sucking lawyer who is eager to make as much money as he possibly can off Jurassic Park, not even willing to offer discounted prices because they won't have to. When the T-Rex shows up, the lawyer abandons the innocent children in a cowardly fashion. The T-Rex finds the lawyer and bites him off the toilet. That scene is scary, but it also reminds us that the T-Rex is a predator and also that greed and cowardice seldom end well. Jurassic Park isn't just an action movie. Jurassic Park isn't just a monster movie. It's a movie that has something to say. You can't control life. Life finds a way. And so many summer blockbusters think that bigger is better, but that's not so. Look at Jurassic Park vs. its sequels, and I think we will all agree that bigger is not better. Better is better. And that's how Spielberg creates movie monsters. When I saw Jurassic Park for the first time, I was pretty young. Not as young as I would like to tell everyone I was when I think about running from the TV room every time the T-Rex showed up. But nevertheless, I was still a child. Fast forward 25 years. Every time I watch this movie and that T-Rex shows up, I am right back in my 10-year-old skin. 
Now, I have lost the urge to flee the scene, but my memories of that first viewing are still so vivid, and there is no other movie that has felt more real and amazing and terrifying to me than Jurassic Park. Now, this is a beautiful movie, and one that I have grown to truly love. It has the uncanny ability of lacing jaw-dropping visuals and awe-inspiring wonder with scenes of true terror. This is truly a great movie. But the thing that has stuck with me the most all these years is that T-Rex. And when I think of movie monsters, this film checks all the boxes. Jurassic Park wasn't the first movie to use CG, or even the first to use it well, but it was the first to hide its effects, seamlessly blending the digital work with the practical alternatives they originally intended on using. If you want to know the reason the T-Rex in the first Jurassic Park can't be imitated in its sequels, it's because it was shaped over thousands and thousands of man-hours of design. The filmmakers of the first Jurassic Park did an incredible amount of research to create the movement of the T-Rex, mimicking giraffes, elephants, alligators. The other big reason Jurassic Park looks so freaking good is the cinematography. Most big budget films like Fallen Kingdom, for example, are shot in cinemascope aspect ratio, while Jurassic Park is shot in 185.1. I hope I'm saying that right. I'm using Wikipedia. But the reason that's important is it gives it 20% more verticality on the screen. So Spielberg's team knew the key to inspiring awe was always going to be scale. From giant gates to towering waterfalls, this is a land for giants. And where the key to awe is scale, the key to horror is claustrophobia. And to shoot horror, you really need to understand space and geography. It's also about trapping humans in tiny spaces, in computer rooms, and kitchens, and 4x4s. You know, I'm reminded of the words of the little kid who says, That doesn't look very scary. More like a six-foot turkey. Which is honestly pretty terrifying when you think about it. And cool guy neckerchief wearing Dr. Grant responds by describing how a velociraptor would split open your belly and spill your intestines and eat you alive. A moment this child is going to recount in therapy for the rest of his life. I think I think about that because Jurassic Park does an amazing amazing job telling you just how frightening its monsters are. What makes this movie a masterpiece though is it does an even better job at showing you. I said yeah. to myself, your only weapon, Newman? You're throwing that in the bushes? <laughs> oh. I don't know what movie he had it worse than this or Space Jam. <laughs> <laughs> Space Jam. That's a good Space point. <laughs> us for our episode on Jurassic Park. We hope you enjoyed yourselves. We would love to hear your opinion on our episode or any other movie-related topics, so if you haven't already, hop on over to our Facebook page and join the conversation. We can be found at Real Boys Podcasts. And don't forget, subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have a little spare time and you like what you hear, we would love it if you would take a minute to rate and review our podcast. We appreciate your support. We will be back in two weeks with our episode on the earth-shattering Dark Knight franchise from Christopher Nolan. I know the three of us have been waiting a long time to tackle this Hollywood behemoth, and you are not going to want to miss our discussion. We'll see you then.